Refactor Radio podcast. I'm your host, Vladimir Novik. I'm developer advocate at Hasura. Hasura is an open source engine that gives you uh, an auto-generated real-time GraphQL API on top of new or existing Postgres database. You can deploy it to any cloud as well as to extend it with your own business logic, both by using your own GraphQL server or using serverless functions. Today on our panel, we have Tanmay Gopal. Hi, Tanmay. Hi, folks. Hey, hey, everyone. And our honor guest today is Sean Grove. Hi, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me. Sean is a co-founder of uh, OneGraph. He's uh, really, really active in ReasonML and GraphQL communities. And uh, hopefully today we'll learn some new things from him. Uh, so, Sean, um, before we start with like lots of technical questions, can you kind of give our listeners a brief uh, intro about yourself, how you got into programming in general? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I probably got started when I was quite young. I was into video games. I mean, it's a very standard story and um, tried to make video games maybe as a as a somewhere in middle school. Um, turns out I wasn't very good at making video games, but programming itself was pretty interesting. And uh, that kind of pulled me in for a little while until I got my first job programming when I was 16, working at the local um, uh, junior college and some back office admin. And that was my first job programming. And it was incredibly depressing. Uh, we would go in and it was just wall to wall computers with desks. And you'd come in early in the, the, the morning, you'd work and wouldn't talk to anyone working on this kind of PHP site. Um, and then you would leave at the end of the day. And it was inside of uh, this room with no windows. And I was pretty convinced by the end of that summer that I did not like I wanted to do anything in my professional life except for become a programmer. Uh, that was that was pretty terrible. So I actually ended up uh, studying cognitive neuroscience um, for a while, and uh, the intersection between uh, programming and computational simulation, computational modeling, and whatnot was really interesting, and kind of helped draw me back into uh, the programming world. So um, I, I kind of went from like this PHP mindset to programming a little bit in C. And it took a long time for the more functional parts of programming to uh, jump out at me. So I had a course in Scheme, and I absolutely hated it. I was very upset that I had to program in it. And then about five years later, when I was doing some professional Ruby work, I realized that all of the things I was coming to like about Ruby had actually been there in Scheme and Lisp the entire time. And so that was kind of a, a warning sign that maybe I should wake up and, and take a look at what has already been going on in the industry as a way of kind of learning about uh, what might be fun and interesting in programming in general? Yeah, that, that sounds uh, sounds really a uh, really great path. And uh, I mean, neuroscience. Uh, first time I hear about somebody actually studied neuroscience, and uh, yeah, that that that's super cool. I'm like really interested into these too because uh, like I'm doing a bunch of like examples with like EG headsets and stuff like that. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we should definitely at some point like uh, talk about that topic. Uh, yeah, so um, you're co-founder of um, OneGraph, right? So, like, um, what what I know about OneGraph is that you have like tons of different API integrations and uh, everything, um, like the APIs in GraphQL, so you can consume that. A am I right, or am, uh, can you elaborate a little bit more about the, what you do and the company and like what uh, what OneGraph offers? Yeah, sure. So the idea is pretty simple. Um, it's a single API gateway that you hit and you can get access to lots and lots of different public APIs, um, most of which don't actually have GraphQL um, APIs. So for example, we offer uh, Stripe and Salesforce and Spotify, uh, just to name some that start with an S uh, there. And it's really, really cool to be able to kind of click your way through an API and you see, you know, for example, you can pull out all the most recent charges inside of Stripe or you can control your Spotify player via this GraphQL interface. Um, we also take care of normalizing things like um, authentication across all these different services. So you can just kind of like dive in and start using them immediately uh, without having to worry about kind of all the nitty gritty uh, details. And you can then imagine that, you know, especially with something like schema stitching, this becomes really powerful. Where in Hazara, maybe, you know, you have this nice uh, GraphQL API that covers all of your Postgres database. You might have a table that has, for example, a user's uh, table, and it might have, for example, a Stripe customer ID that links that user to the Stripe 
um, you know, information over in the Stripe API. And with us, we can you can basically do schema stitching where you say, instead of having a Stripe customer ID on this user table, I want to have just a Stripe customer. And then that will automatically jump across into Stripe. So you can query from your own database and pull in data from Salesforce, from Stripe, uh, with all the kind of interface normalized uh, straight away. Yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. So basically, I can use one graph as uh, like in Hasura, we can use remote schemas for stitching uh, between like um, ex any external GraphQL servers and uh, and uh, or like serverless functions and um, um, our GraphQL API. So basically, you're saying I can take one graph with Stripe integration and basically put this remote schema in Hasura and stitch it together and be available on my like uh, from my my API, right? That's the idea. Uh, there may be some some polishing. You know, we'll we'll go through and figure out what that actually looks like. Uh, maybe at some point in the future. Um, but you know, it's definitely the fundamental building blocks are there for that. Yeah, that that sounds uh, really interesting. At some point, we need to kind of live stream that, like uh, doing Hasura with um, uh, with one graph, and uh, like we'll see how it goes. Like uh, we'll probably uh, schedule something on Twitch uh, to stream about. Um, so as I assume you like you have lots of API integrations, you mentioned lots of them are um, not written in GraphQL and basically you kind of wrap uh, REST API with GraphQL, right? So um, it's supposed to be kind of painful thing, right? So um, I know like you did this a lot and you started um, some time ago and uh, uh, like what basically the challenges how uh, th that you've seen how you overcame these challenges yeah so I, I guess there are quite a few um, at a high level um, so one of them is you know so it, there aren't just rest apis anymore there's also soap apis and more rpc based you know, apis as well mm -hmm. and so finding a way to present those in an idiomatic graphql api can be challenging for example, there are lots of different ways to do paginations and different APIs. So you have offset-based or um, you know, cursor-based or um, page-based. And one thing that we try to do is make it so that, you know, a personal goal of mine is that I want to be able to write a single function that handles pagination and just use it everywhere. I never want to have to deal with, you know, this service paginates this way and this one paginates that way. And so one of the things we do is we make sure that we can normalize the pagination APIs and then present an idiomatic and uniform uh, pagination API across all these different APIs. And so kind of each API that we wrap requires some amount of experience uh, in general and also some amount of like deep dive in that specific API. Um, there are other things like authentication, um, tooling, reliability, um, performance applications. Uh, to give you an example, uh, Salesforce requires uh, has a pretty strict API limit on its REST API, and it's extremely expensive to get additional API calls per day. And if you're using the REST API, you'll hit that pretty quickly. And what they really want you to do is use the bulk API. So at, at one point, I believe the REST API limit was 10,000 calls per day. And so that's kind of, you know, if you're hitting um, 10,000 endpoints per day, that you'll, you'll get that pretty quickly. Uh, whereas with a bulk API, you can uh, retrieve 5,000 records at a time, you know, in a single call. And so there's obviously one of those is, is a bit better for um, pulling out lots of different uh, data. The challenge, however, is that the REST API is RESTful, it's JSON, and it is synchronous. The bulk API is, it takes a dialect of the Salesforce query language called SOCL. As an input, it, it returns XML and it's asynchronous. So you can imagine that if you're building out a um, an application on top of the Salesforce platform and you're using the REST API and you hit that limit and you switch over to the bulk API, those implementations don't look anything like each other. And so for us, what we want to do is because you give us this nice declarative, you know, GraphQL query that says I need exactly this data. We can see that you know, as we join from Stripe into Salesforce, uh, that we're about to make a thousand API calls against the Salesforce API. And we can automatically switch that over to use the bulk API so that you don't have to rewrite your application. 
and you don't use up 10% of your daily calls in that one call. Uh, and that, that kind of thing requires a, a pretty deep dive into understanding the nuances of Salesforce's API. So that, that kind of thing can be, can be challenging. At the same time, we've built out a lot of tooling that helps us test our API for consistency, that gives us heads up about whenever we recognize something might be a date that we want to represent it in the same way as everywhere else. Um, and we kind of have moved bit by bit to making it uh, faster and faster to build these kind of applications. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you, you. So you ba basically getting something from uh, like you getting the GraphQL query, that you're analyzing it and um, making decisions as you go. Like if you see that you you get like lots of uh, requests, then you obviously switch to different types of APIs. And yeah, it sounds like really really cool tool. I definitely should uh, check out uh, OneGraph and um, start like using it. Um, I also know, like you wrote everything in ReasonML, right? Am I right? Am I right for that? Uh, all of the backend is written in ReasonML. We have a little bit of legacy closure code that we use for some of our code generation, uh, but we're in the process of um, switching that over to uh, Reason. Cool. So, uh, like, well, when you started, basically, like in the recent year, Reason um, uh, ecosystem evolved uh, quite a lot, like especially like. Uh, GraphQL um, um, with the reason evolved a lot since like last May when I when I used it for example on um, your workshop actually and uh, ReasonConf last year um, it hadn't uh, had so so much tools that it have uh, has right now and um, I, I think it was quite challenging challenging back then to to do uh, everything in ReasonML so. Um, is like part of evolvement of ReasonML in GraphQL uh, area is something you invested into or something that just came with the community? Well, yeah, so there, I mean, um, the reason evolved out of the, and, and now evolves alongside the OCaml community. And the focus of the OCaml community has been pretty different from say the JavaScript or the JVM community. So a lot of the things that you take advantage in the node world don't really exist in Reason. So to your point, there were a lot of um, bits of infrastructure that we had to either rebuild ourselves or kind of encourage uh, our friends to build for us. Uh, GraphQL, we were lucky that uh, there was an excellent implementation by Andreas and recently has been worked on a lot by um, Antonio that has just been wonderful to work with. I would actually say that the main problem of using the OCaml GraphQL server is that we don't have a good set, a bit of empathy for uh, people who are using GraphQL JS, for example, because so many of the different problems that they run into are just impossible to have in the recent world. So although we, we have a very different set of challenges, um, I'm really, really happy with the OCaml GraphQL server uh, package in particular. Yeah, that, that sounds really cool. Uh, so uh, another question that I had, like regarding specifically regarding um, like wrapping REST APIs. So, uh, so you mentioned Stripe, you mentioned like different APIs that you wrap. But the, the question is, what uh, what happens if API is unstable? Like let's say for example GitHub API, right? So I'm not saying it's unstable right now, but we, um, like there was uh, some issues previously when you uh, got like. A uh, bunch of data in your response changed, uh, and uh, basically in GraphQL um, world, it means your types are different. You need to kind of rewrite stuff. So basically, you need to run your REST endpoint through some kind of analysis. So do you have some kind of tooling for for this uh, thing, or you just do it manually? Yeah, so it's it's a good point to make that. Um... You know, so both for us, because we're written in Reason and because we are a GraphQL API, the types and the structure of an API has to be really, really explicit. And oftentimes, REST is a bit of a grab bag. And so deriving a computer-readable description of a REST API is, is somewhat challenging. Um, we have, to, give, to illustrate an example of this, um, the YouTube API is on V3. And every now and then, these APIs go through pretty, pretty drastic changes, uh, where you know maybe they realize that if they were to organize their API around a different set of you know uh, primitives, then the API would feel much cleaner. 
And what you find is oftentimes that with these big reorgs of an API, a lot of the data that was available in V2 is still available in V3. It's just kind of moved into a different area. Uh, and maybe access to it is a bit slower or whatnot, but um, it's still there. So we do have tooling that helps us initially analyze a REST API. Um, and we make sure that we never allow bad data through to the client. So we would rather throw an error on our part than let bad data uh, be seen by a client. Uh, that said, whenever we do see something changes, say for example, between the U2, V2 and V3 implementations, uh, we try our best to actually map the fields uh, that you've queried for into the new API. So we can tell you, for example, you know, if you imagine what this is normally like, You've built an application on top of someone's API, say the Google Calendar or YouTube API. And what, they, what they've said is, all right, we've changed our mind. We've had a bout of OCD. We're going to reorganize our, our API. And you have until August of this year to uh, re-implement everything. And that's basically right access to your calendar, right? Like they get to schedule something for you or else your application stops working. And this it blows my mind that we're okay with this. And so like what one graph can do is say, all right, look, we will keep your query working as much as possible. Uh, we'll deprecate those fields so that new people don't start using them. But for you, we'll go ahead and reroute them to the existing, to the new API calls. Uh, you know, although it may be more expensive and it may be slower, uh, at least your application will still work. That way, if you're kind of scaling out and you're trying to build this product, it turns out, it turns from a like, a drop everything and get this done deadline to a, well, that's fine. It'll still work. Um, and we can focus on the more important problems uh, part. So yeah, to, to answer your question, we do have a lot of tooling that notifies us of APIs changing. Um, and we use that internally to make sure that we protect our clients um, upstream from us, or I guess downstream from us, uh, depending on which way you look at it, uh, from those changes. Yeah, that, that, that's how, so all, most of these tools are internal, right? You don't have something uh, like open source so people can start using. Uh... No, so we don't have them. Um, we haven't open sourced a ton of them. Most of our open source efforts so far have been focused on kind of tooling for the GraphQL experience rather than the server side stuff. I think part of that is because we're in the reason world. So the ability or the opportunity for crossover is somewhat limited, but I think that we'll start to make some changes around that in the um, probably later this year. We have a number of, of pretty important tools that I would like to release, uh, but it will take some time to actually figure out what does that look like and how do we make that usable for as many people as possible. Great, looking forward for that. Um, so if we um, like step out for a second from a recent world, right? Mm -hmm. And um, for example, like several of uh, like our listeners would want to um, try and wrap some REST API. And let's say if this API is not available on one graph, because if it's available, it's obviously will be easier to uh, to use it uh, with one graph. Yeah, but let's I, say I, I highly with... recommend that. Like, please say, like, take advantage of our pain, save yourself the pain, just use one graph. But yes, assuming yeah. it's not available on one graph, then go ahead. Yeah, assuming it's not available on one graph. Um, how would you advise uh, for people who are not um, like writing servers in, in Reason or Camel, um, and let's say writing in Node, how would you advise approach this uh, uh, this thing? Because obviously, like the steps are the same, like analyzing the data, then uh, some sort of like building uh, a schema and stuff like that. So, what what you would advise as a steps preferred steps for our listeners to start using? Yeah, so we actually have a series of articles coming out on this. Um, and I, I think it's a little bit challenging because building an idiomatic GraphQL API is actually something that requires a bit of experience and, and taste. And you're going to fail for quite a while in it. And that's that's okay. It's, as long as you expect that going into it, it's, it's going to be a little bit painful to figure out. I think you'll be okay. Just like designing any API for any sort of like library is, you know, it requires a lot of thought and understanding of the domain. So uh, the way we always go about it is to, one, take a look at what data is available inside of an API, um, and then two, to think about what are the use cases that someone would want to build on top of this. And then based off of those two things, um, we go ahead and take a chance to 
um, kind of organize our thoughts around what should the structure of this graph look like? What are the interconnections and the relationships between the data inside of this API? Uh, not only inside of the API, but between this and other services. So for example, with uh, your database with Hazara, you might have some uh, data inside of your database that relates to this external service. And so kind of thinking about those different um, APIs is and the high level structure is important. Uh, very often we see people go in and wrap a REST API and just do it straight off of, for example, a Swagger or OpenAPI document. And that often leads to this very um, kind of clunky feeling. And oftentimes the front-end developers or the people who are, who are building on top of that API don't get a lot of satisfaction. You know, um, They don't get a lot of the benefits that GraphQL might otherwise offer them. So I think, yeah, first is, you know, think about high level. What's the data available? Uh, what's the relationship of this data inside of the API? How does this uh, situate inside of the larger, you know, internet uh, graph? And what are the use cases? And then beyond that, there are a lot of things that, um, like a lot of small things. So there are challenges in the GraphQL API and uh, kind of each of these challenges oftentimes have a like a quick exit hatch. Uh, to give you an example, there are APIs that have dynamically keyed objects. Um, so you can imagine um, an NPM where you can go and you can get some metadata about a package via their API. And the package will have you know keys like name, which is the name of the package and the license and, and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, we'll have one is versions. And versions is actually an object where the key of the keys of the object are actually each published version. So it'd be like 2.3, 2.4, 2.10, that kind of thing. And that's really hard to represent inside of GraphQL uh, because you, you need to have dynamically generated keys and that's not how GraphQL works. It's very, very static. And so there is the ability to create a JSON scalar, which is what you know some, um, some implementations do. Where it's like, all right, I, I can't tell you anything, you know, about this node other than it's going to be JSON. And what we find is that almost any time you end up doing that, it you regret it later. Um, so, you know, the big advice is you're going to be using this GraphQL API for quite a while. You're going to be supporting a number of clients for quite a while. And given the ethos of the GraphQL community, which is you should never make breaking changes if you can avoid it. Uh, that means like it's worthwhile to actually step back and implement or invest a little bit more time and effort and actually making a GraphQL API that's going to make your consumers happy. So I mean investing like more into um, like solving these challenges and um, yeah, making something uh, re really stable and not uh, like rushing to um, release to production something that will uh, at some point fail and uh, it well, it may lead to more bugs than you expected, uh, like uh, to fix things from like being GraphQL API. Exactly, and I, I think in particular, if you're kind of used to the the node way of, of running, which can often be, you know you have just this big JSON object and you can throw it out there um, in any you know, express endpoint and you know, if a field is there, it'll just work kind of thing. Um, it's, it's probably worthwhile to actually think very explicitly about each field that you're exposing, your GraphQL API, um, each um, idiom that you expose is something you have to support for quite a while, uh, at least in an ideal world. Uh, so it's, it's a good idea to actually take a little bit more time than usual and figure out at least what are the patterns that you're going to use across all of your API so that you're um, consistent. And, and what if, it brings me actually to the next question, and what if uh, I want to, like my client of mine, let's say, want to migrate to GraphQL uh, API and uh, he has like a legacy REST API that he still wants to support, but he wants like to invest into creating new uh, graphic, uh, GraphQL API. So, what will be the the advice steps, um, like for, from like your experience to uh, basically migrate from REST to to GraphQL? Uh, so, actually, I think that's a pretty exciting idea. I, I mean, obviously, that is what gets me out of bed in the morning at this point. 
Um, but so there, there are a couple of different ways to go. Uh, I, I think the ideal way is very incremental. Uh, for me, at least, what I would do is to take a look at the REST API. Again, so just as we mentioned beforehand, what's the high-level idea here? What's data is available? What are the relationships? And then to build a GraphQL API that has all of the idioms like normalized pagination, um, easy authentication, um, the ability to jump between all these different endpoints um, in the GraphQL API part. Uh, the and the, the big concern here, though, is obviously that if you want to be careful about building both of these two APIs at the same time. Um, so if you are, if the goal is to get over to GraphQL as the new thing, um, then you want to be careful about any investment that you make in the REST API as soon as you start on the GraphQL side. You really want to be making the improvements that the GraphQL side needs and not what the existing clients need. But once you have those two things running side by side, the really fun thing is to have the GraphQL API actually eat the REST API. So whereas previously the GraphQL API was running on top of the REST API, which and then you know you could have clients that were hitting either the REST or the GraphQL. Uh, now what you do is you create these GraphQL queries that exactly mimic the REST API endpoints. And so now you have these GraphQL queries that you can expose on top of the GraphQL API that mimic the REST API. So now everything is going through your GraphQL API, right? Even if it's through this facade of a REST API yeah. on top of it. And then you can slowly chip away and remove the underlying REST API so it's just your GraphQL API. So at any given point, you have a fully working system and you have this clear migration path that you're headed towards. And then eventually, like you can collapse all the dependencies and have a much simpler system. So you kind of gradually deprecate these fields, uh, deprecate, uh, not, not, uh, not actually deprecate, you just recreate the queries. But I, I'm wondering if it's the, the best approach or maybe, like I, I was thinking about like something in um, pretty much similar, but um, a little bit different for, um, let's say creating um, a wrapper for your um, REST API and um, deprecating most of your queries and uh, basically introducing new API, like gradually starting to introduce your uh, new GraphQL API uh, while keeping the rest as deprecated. Uh, it basically, uh, and like commit to the fact you, you don't do any improvements, as you mentioned, you don't do any improvements on REST side because because if you do that, um, if you do changes on REST, um, REST API part, then basically you're in kind of loop of trying to fix what you broke, right? So um, I was thinking about some kind of like deprecating the fields and then uh, like mo moving towards a new and much better GraphQL API. Um, and for example, I thought about doing something like with Hasura. Um, like let, let's say if we have a Postgres database, right? In the ideal world, right? We have a Postgres database with like old server and REST API running. So I can basically create a um, GraphQL server that traps this API and um, I can put it as a remote schema inside Hasura. Hasura will sit on top of this, uh, the very same Postgres database. And basically I will get the new API the better one, more optimized one, but I will still get the, the old queries and uh, the old uh, mutations and subscriptions if I have them. Yeah, I think that definitely has some big advantages. Um, I, I just like the idea that ultimately you're going to be able to get rid of that REST API. And in your case, what you're saying is, you know, your market is deprecated, so no new clients will be, you know, hitting it at all, obviously. Um, yeah. But you still have the old clients. And in some cases, you don't control the clients. You may have, you know, once you've committed to a thing, you it's out there, people are using it, and it can be difficult or impossible in some cases to get rid of it. And in that case, it's nice to be able to um, present the same interface so that those clients are known to not be breaking, but still have as simple an implementation as possible. So with Hazara, I think you could probably do that um, fairly easily. Um, yes, I, I think that that's a, a pretty good approach. I think it's actually fairly similar to what I was suggesting. Uh, yeah, so the thing is with the old clients, they will uh, still uh, like uh, hit your REST API. Because if you, like you're saying you're not controlling the clients and you're right, but 
let's say you have an old um, REST API and your clients are using, uh, using it. And even if you wrap it with GraphQL API, they won't use this GraphQL API. They will mm -hmm. still will be using REST endpoints. Yep. So basically, and at some point, if they want to upgrade to, to use GraphQL, they will get your, your docs or something, and they will see that the new API, that like not deprecated one, and then mm -hmm. it basically will be pretty much easier for them to switch to the proper API. Yeah, so, so the idea here is the trade-offs are, one, on the one hand, you're putting the burden on the client, and you're saying, look, um, we are going to, like we want you to upgrade, and until you upgrade, we commit to maintaining two different implementations. So whenever you have, and what I've oftentimes seen with different companies is, uh, whenever you version your API, right? So your REST API has slash v1 slash whatever, v2 slash whatever. Oftentimes what happens is there's a security fix and it doesn't tend to get ported back to the previous versions and whatnot. It can be very, very difficult depending on how you actually organize and implement your API and version your API to make sure that you're spreading across all of the different uh, versions of it. Um, Sean, you ju just paused for, for a second. Uh, it was not recorded. Can, can you repeat what you said? <laughs> I waited. Yeah, uh, start, starting from where? <laughs> uh, like a minute ago, something like that. Uh, okay, yeah. So the one of the trade-offs with that particular approach is that you're putting the burden on the clients to upgrade and putting the burden on yourself to maintain two different versions of the API. Right, you're saying until you upgrade to our new version, we commit to maintain both this GraphQL version and this REST version, which are probably two different code bases. And what I've seen with companies that have that version the REST API, say you know slash v1 slash whatever slash v2 slash whatever, uh, that whenever you have, for example, a security fix that gets rolled out, it can be really difficult to make sure that that gets rolled out across all different versions because you kind of have this split brain problem where you have lots of different endpoints that you have to maintain. And so I try to make sure that, you know, whatever system I set up requires as little discipline as possible to maintain and just do the right thing almost accidentally. So with what I was suggesting is that the client may never upgrade and we should be okay with that. They may be on the REST API forever. So we go ahead and we build the GraphQL API on top of that to give, you know, the new clients all the benefits that GraphQL is going to offer them. However, for the old clients, we want to let them go ahead and use the REST API as it exists, but we don't want to have to maintain two different code bases. That's difficult for a number of reasons. So my migration path is to get step one foot over into the GraphQL world and have both of them running with the REST deprecated, then to re-implement the REST on top of the GraphQL and remove the old service. So now we have a single um, API server that offers both the old uh, deprecated REST version for the old clients uh, but that's just in terms of, you know, existing GraphQL APIs or GraphQL queries that are representable in the new GraphQL API as well. Uh, and then the new one um, that could be, for example, just built on top of Hazara. Yeah, it sounds, uh, sounds interesting. Uh, Tanmay, you, you want to say something? Yeah, I, I had I had two, two questions. I think the first thing was... Tanmay? Uh, hello, can you guys hear me? Hello, hello. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, my recording, I think, has just been jinxed for a while. Um, okay, so 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 I had two things. I think the first question was, um, could you describe the so 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 I, I'm not sure I understood the 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 final architecture that that you were kind of proposing where you have to maintain less. Um, um, could you kind of describe the? Yeah, sure. So the, the idea is again? just simply, you know. Uh, yeah, so step one is you have the REST API. Step two, you built a GraphQL interface on top of that REST API. So at, during this point, you have two different code bases, probably two different uh, APIs. And then step three is to re-implement the REST API in terms of the GraphQL API. So I believe that GitHub is pretty famous here, where they actually power their REST API mostly through their GraphQL API at this point. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. I just wanted to make sure that's, that's kind of what I understood. Um, so I think the second question was, um, do you think that there are lessons to be learned or there are there are things, um, there's inspiration that we can take from when folks were doing the SOAP to REST migrations? Like, I don't know if you or Vladimir have insight. Um, that, was, that was kind of before my time, I guess. But 
um, in recent, in more recent uh, times, have you seen people switching from SOAP to REST? And you know what that migration path looks like, uh, and what the politics of that adoption looks like, um, or, or you know how you convince your stakeholders to say, hey, let's have multiple layers that kind of translate one to the other, or let's have two parallel layers that kind of run simultaneously. Um, are there lessons, uh, or are there things that we've seen in the wild that we can learn from? Uh, we definitely have some experience on the SOAP side, but I'm curious to ask Vladimir if um, maybe he has more insights on the uh, you know, politics and PSYOPs side of things. Um, can, can you just repeat that? Because both of you was uh, like re really like your connection. I was just, uh, uh, sorry, okay. guys. No, no, no problem. So I was, I was basically asking if there's, um, if there's anything that we can learn from from folks when they've been migrating from SOAP to REST uh, and any lessons to be learned there in terms of the architecture or, uh, or you know, the migration path um, and not just technically, but also from, you know, the, the political angle of convincing folks in your organization to, you know, reduce layers or add layers or keep parallel layers running. Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't have any experience and I've not seen or migrated an XML API to REST or SOAP API to REST API. So. Um, I was just throwing it out to both of you. Yeah, so like, like um, I think the main idea for convincing in general, for going from one um, sort of like uh, older version or architecture to a new one is uh, being able to, um, um, to explain like how you gradually change without like affecting uh, releases, right? So, uh, if you are able to deliver a new API uh, while still be a, being able to deliver new features for the for, for the application for like web app, uh, uh, then you are good. You probably uh, su will succeed in convincing. If you're uh, you will try to convince folks. Um, um, get into like new new uh, architecture. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, uh, to get into new uh, type of architecture uh, while uh, uh, kind of posing on uh, new features and uh, just like get, uh, having like regressions or stepping back, you will never succeed in that. So I think it's more of uh, finding gradual adoption of um, um, of like new API version and stuff like that. So that that's what I think. I think there's also the migration from SOAP to GraphQL specifically in many ways is much less painful than from REST to GraphQL uh, because GraphQL, I mean, you know, the, the joke is that GraphQL is SOAP for millennials. So, you know, there's there's something there. <laughs> yeah, I was, about to, I, was, uh, I was just about to say that. Like, I feel like SOAP... But, you know, they, they share some of the, the same constraints, right, where they are um, both strongly typed uh, they are explicitly introspectable by a computer. And so, um, you know, there is, we actually have a pipeline for doing the initial conversion from a SOAP API into GraphQL. The, the challenge is really that the thing that emerges from a typed SOAP API does not feel very idiomatic inside of GraphQL. Uh, but you can build that idiomatic thing on top of the transformation layer. So it's it's definitely possible and in, in many ways um, easier. Got it. I think I think uh, I think Sean. One of the things that I was I mean uh, maybe the the I was I was also wondering if the migration from SOAP to REST, like ten years ago when every API was SOAP and then people were moving to REST, um, if that had any lessons or if that had any interesting insights when we think about the REST to GraphQL migration, right? Like when folks move from SOAP to REST. Yeah, I, I think so. In many ways, I feel like um, you know there 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 are different kinds of rest, right? There's the um, the thesis rest, right? A uh, part of the um, hadios or or hadios, where it's this beautiful introspectable. You have one single rest client, and it can introspect any kind of rest API. And then there is kind of maybe the more Rails um, approach, which is it's basically rest e or restful kind of. And uh, we're going to use JSON, and we have these named endpoints, and um, that's that's basically the main basis of it. 
And I think the the second of those two has definitely won out in popular imagination. Um, very few REST APIs are, you know, introspectable by a, a single REST client. Um, and so I, I think a lot of the reaction to SOAP and the movement to REST was really around getting away from the very heavyweight nature of SOAP um, and of also XML in many cases. Um, so where REST and, and JSON kind of went together, although they didn't have to. So I think that uh, one danger, uh, Sebastian Mark Boga from the React team, I think has said that if you make a language that has great tooling, then the biggest danger there is that the abstractions will evolve to require great tooling. They'll get so complex that you'll eventually need to have great tooling. And in some ways, I think that's what happened with SOAP. So you know, you want to make sure that as GraphQL grows, or you know, I guess we as the community want to make sure that as GraphQL grows, we don't introduce so many abstractions and, and layers and whatnot that basically using a GraphQL you know, API requires just layers and layers and layers of tooling just to get started. As it is right now, it's by far the easiest way to use any API, um, but it could easily go the other way as we start to introduce more and more abstractions. That, that's very yeah, interesting. Totally make, make yeah. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, cool. Um, um, I had um, kind of a little bit different question about like uh, uh, not necessarily connected to GraphQL. You just mentioned in um, in like what you uh, you want to talk about the unicorns uh, unicorns in uh, in reason. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I'm I'm super eager to learn uh, like uh, how you can use that and. Um, yeah, some of our listeners that are interested in Reason uh, will probably benefit from this too. Uh, yeah, sure. This is definitely off the beaten path for most people. Definitely, I think, for the, the normal GraphQL crowd. But it is a really exciting thing, and I think it's becoming um, more and more approachable. Uh, but the idea of Unikernel kind of starts out from uh, maybe you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, where right now, whenever we build applications, uh, we put in a lot of effort into testing, um, into making as small a code base as possible with as minimal uh, surface area for security attacks as possible. So we kind of build like this beautiful little ship in a bottle. And then we attach it to this 15 million line uh, of memory unsafe and type unsafe you know, package called the Linux kernel. <laughs> and there are a lot of challenges there. Um, in particular, the security you know, surface attack area for Linux is just massive. Like no single human being can hold the entire Linux kernel in their head anymore. Um, so, and then, you know, to give you an example where, you know, I've, I've, there is this um, objection where you say, well, you know, it doesn't matter that it's 15 million lines of code because I'm not using all 15 million lines of code. And my, my favorite counter argument to this is uh, the Venom attack. If you remember Venom uh, a few years ago. And this was, uh, you know, kind of game over for AWS in some sense, where the hypervisor was presenting a virtualized driver, or a driver for a virtualized floppy disk. Uh, so you can imagine this would allow you to mount a floppy disk in the cloud, right? Because we're all using lots of floppy disks in the cloud. <laughs> uh, however, the implementation of this um, this floppy disk driver had a buffer overflow. And uh, it actually allowed the, the researchers to escape from the hypervisor and to be able to see all of the other running instances on that hypervisor. And you can imagine like this is deadly in the, the, like, the age of containerization and whatnot. And you know, no one is using floppy disk in the cloud. And yet, because it was there, we're all vulnerable to it. And so, um, Unikernels are this idea of like, well, what if we were to re-implement an entire operating system from scratch? And in the 90s, when there was a lot more research into operating systems, you know, you had lots and lots of different competition um, and different approaches, you know, exokernels and things like BOS and whatnot, and operating systems, they never really stuck because you had this ever, this hamster wheel of hardware to support, right? So the, the biggest problem was everything, all the hardware supported Windows because Windows had all the users and all the users would use Windows because it supported their hardware. 
And Linux kind of only managed to survive through sheer, you know, bloody mindedness. They were able to kind of push through and build ridiculous amounts of hardware supports. However, once we got to the, the, the world of virtualization, where we have things like Zen and KVM and whatnot, we now have this unified idea of hardware. So there's a chance for you know, operating system research to restart. So Unikernels decided to target um, hypervisor. So now we have one layer of hardware that we can target, and we should just work. And the OCaml Labs people out of Cambridge have built this system called Mirage. And what it is, is a pure OCaml implementation of all of the stuff that exists inside of the Linux kernel and more. So things like pure, T pure TCP implementations, um, pure TLS and SSL implementations, stuff that would be crazy that you would never want to implement for yourself from scratch. And basically, they are just a bunch of crazy people who are also really smart and really, really passionate about uh, secure and efficient computing. So, you know, it's one of those like mind exercise where you think, well, you know, it would be great if we could have that, but we can actually have that. So what they've done is they've built all this stuff out in OCaml. So now whenever you develop an OCaml application, you can develop it on your, you know, your Linux box or your OSX or your Windows or whatever, and just use it like normal. Uh, and whenever you compile it, it will use the built-in TCP stack from OSX and the built-in OpenSSL libraries and everything. But whenever you're ready to actually compile it for production, rather than pulling in the kernel driver uh, drivers for those, it will actually pull in the pure OCaml implementation. So there's no C code at all. So there's basically no memory unsafe code running in here. And it's also type safe. And then it, because it's not pulling in all 15 million lines of the Linux C kernel, it's only pulling in those tens of thousands of lines of OCaml. It's incredibly small. So rather than you know, your final you know, image that you deploy using Docker to the cloud that's you know, maybe a gigabyte or a couple gigabytes because you know, it, uses, it includes Linux and OpenSSL and all this other stuff and also your application, uh, maybe the JVM or whatever. It will only include the exact code that's required for your application. And so it ends up being maybe a megabyte or under that uh, in total size. And this completely changes the way that we can deploy our applications. You can imagine that for every single time that you deploy to production, you can literally take the binary that you're about to push because it's only a couple of megabytes and check it into another Git repository. And now whenever you're running this in production, if you ever hit a bug, capture that stack trace, capture that input, check out that exact uh, you know, artifact from your audit uh, GitHub repository and replay it. Attach GDB and you can see exactly what's happening. Not only that, but because they are so small, they boot incredibly quickly, right? It's actually really normal now for a Mirage unikernel to boot in about 20, 30, or 40 milliseconds. And that is smaller than the reply window of a TCP connection. So you can imagine, for example, that you have no servers running. You just have a load balancer. And you have a connection come in to request some resource from your site, right? Like it's going to download an image or request some computation or whatever. And you can literally boot up an entire VM just for this one connection. Let that connection do whatever it needs. And as soon as that connection is finished, throw it away. Whereas beforehand, you could run maybe hundreds of you know, Docker containers inside of a, a computer. You can run tens or hundreds of thousands of these unikernels. It's kind of like the best of both worlds where you get the performance, actually better performance than um, serverless functions, right? Where uh, rather than just booting up and running a single function, you're booting up and running your entire server. But you don't have to slice it up into individual uh, functions and, and run all of those. So it's, it's still definitely bleeding edge, uh, but there's a lot of movement in that area that is really exciting. I think, I think that's it. So it's like getting... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was saying it's like getting the, all the benefits of serverless without like the cons of uh, like uh, without lesser startup times, without uh, without like splitting everything by separate functions and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, that plus the security attack area is is incredibly small. 
So, you know, if you are aware of, you know, um, kind of hypervisor calls, these are the things where the hypervisor, say Zen or KVM, the thing that actually runs, you know, AWS's EC2 infrastructure, uh, what it does is say, I have hundreds of calls that I can pass through to the underlying hardware. Uh, and each of those could have some potential security issue. We don't, we don't know. We, we hope not, but we maybe. So the fewer of those that you allow, the more secure you're likely to be. And I think now uh, the Mirage Unikernel with Solo 5 is down to something like seven or eight hypervisor calls. That's all it needs to be able to boot and so and to run its entire operating system. And so these things, when they run, are incredibly secure. I think, I In think fact, the... there was a fun uh, project called uh, the Bitcoin Pinata. Uh, and this was by the Mirage group. And they weren't really sure how good you know, uh, their security was going to be. And so, but they wanted to test it out. And this was before Bitcoin was really a thing. And so what they did was they built a Mirage unikernel and they put the private keys to some Bitcoin wallets in it. And they used their own from the ground up OCaml uh, implementation of TLS, of TCP, of everything. So if there's a bug in anything, you can get in and you can get the private keys and get the Bitcoins. So they put this up and that was before Bitcoin was a thing. And at some point, there was more than $100,000 worth of Bitcoin inside of the Pinata. <laughs> so if anyone went in, and it's all, it's all open source, so anyone could go and read the implementation, read the source, and I think it stayed up for about two years, and then they eventually took the, the Bitcoin down and used it for something else. <laughs> that, that, that sounds really cool. <laughs> I, think, I, think the, I think there's another... I, I mean, I, I, um, I, I really like the sound. I think Mirage is the most one of the most popular unikernel implementations right um and i think i think the the same problem that that you're thinking about that you that you're speaking about right i think i think the other approach that folks are trying out which kind of sounds similar but is more of an addition of a layer is the is the whole web assembly v8 isolates kind of stuff that's also happening right where they're keeping a bunch of v8s running and then you're compiling stuff down to to web assembly um, and then and then injecting WebAssembly code um, that's running. So it's kind of like you're increasing a layer, uh, and you might not get like the stack trace kind of benefits. Um, it, it'd be harder to get the stack trace kind of benefits because you'd have to kind of do more mapping to the original the the original code that you had and stuff like that. Um, but I think I think I think there's that that's kind of the other movement that's also trying to solve similar problems, right? Am I, is that is that understanding correct? Yeah, so I actually think that um, WebAssembly may end up being a really, it's kind of like a poor name because it may end up being a sort of universal assembly mm -hmm. in some ways mm -hmm. um, where you could imagine everything compiling towards uh, WebAssembly, which currently runs you know, in VMs and these crazy, like you said, V8 isolates and all this other stuff. But you could imagine that implementation or the support for WebAssembly moving lower and lower into the stack and actually erasing decades and decades of layers that have just built up. So, you know, you, you have basically this restrictive platform called WebAssembly um, that has kind of security built in at a default level that could potentially be implemented very low in the stack that would get rid of things like, in many ways, kind of dockers and containers and, and whatnot. So I definitely think that there's an interesting, um, you know, uh, potential to be pursued there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exciting times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. Uh, really exciting times. Uh, so um, I kind of want to wrap up this episode with um, uh, uh, several picks from, from each one of you, like um, different resources or just like not tech-related picks, uh, uh, something our listeners sh should totally check out. So, uh, Tom, I can install what what picks they have. Um, I don't I don't really have a resource to check out, but I'm 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 playing around a lot with uh, with the uh, hooks and uh, with GraphQL subscriptions. I'm really excited about you know working on this uh, reusable kind of real time feed. Uh, you know, building that building that with hooks, and then maybe later on suspense when suspense comes out. Uh, but but that's kind of an exciting project that I'm working on, and I I think this idea of like just dropping in a hook and making any component like your notifications bar or or anything in your React app like a real time feed, uh, I I think that's awesome. But uh, but yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. Not not really a pick. 
Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, uh, subscriptions are st is still not there for uh, uh, like in the hoax realm. So um, I did the stream last week about like using queries and mutations with hooks uh, and with suspense. Uh, but yeah, subscriptions are not there yet. Uh, Sean, what, do you have uh, any picks? Um, yeah, actually, I guess, I mean, since we talked about it, I would really check out um, maybe Anil Madhavapedi's talks on unikernels, on Mirage in particular, to see what the motivations are and kind of how exciting they can be. I, I don't give off quite the same energy as he does, uh, so I would definitely recommend, um, I, I can provide some links to my favorite Mirage talks. Um, and I guess the other one that, I, it's a bit out of left field, but there's a tool that I've kind of recently fallen in love with called um, American Fuzzy Lop AFL that is able to fuzz instrumented binaries in a way that basically guarantees 100% code coverage uh, in just mind-bogglingly efficient ways. Uh, to give you an example here, uh, we use OCaml GraphQL Server and AFL is meant to fuzz C applications. And, and what I mean by fuzzing is it puts in random bits of input and sees if it can get it to crash or to fail some test. And, um, but however, the OCaml compiler can produce binaries that are instrumented for use with AFL. So you can also fuzz your reason applications with it. And the OCaml GraphQL server has a branch that was instrumented and uh, AFL starts fuzzing it. And it's looking at every time it runs, it gets to see which bits of code were executed. Even though it's only looking at the generated assembler, it knows which lines of code of the OCaml were actually um, executed for each input. And you can imagine that um, it'll generate some random inputs and it'll trigger the parser. And most of the inputs are just going to be invalid GraphQL for the GraphQL server. It won't know what it is because AFL doesn't know anything about GraphQL. However, it's able to look at the generate assembler and see, oh, we seem to keep taking a left turn here. I want to take a right turn. I've never taken a right turn here. I want to cover that bit of code over there. And so it'll work back. It'll look at the kind of generate assembler and say, what would what input would trigger a right turn here? And it will start to like fudge your application and find out how can I trigger every possible line of your code automatically while running these tests that you're asking for. And so within about five to 10 minutes of running on a MacBook Pro, knowing nothing about GraphQL, it's actually generating valid GraphQL queries. It's completely mind boggling. And I think it will completely change the way that we write tests. Oh, that, that's super cool. Especially like, yeah, for tests and everything. It, yeah, I definitely should check it, check it out. If you mind sharing the link later on, I will put it in uh, like episode descriptions. Sure. Um, yeah, so um, picks from me. So uh, we spoke a lot uh, today about GraphQL and, and ReasonML. Um, so I did recently two boot camps. Uh, one was a week ago. It was four days GraphQL boot camp, uh, nine and a half hours of live coding with a bunch of exercises. So it's free on YouTube. Uh, I will share a link, so check it out. I also did uh, last month. I did ReasonML bootcamp in the same format, like four days of ReasonML live coding. It's like a little bit more than ten hours, and uh, also free on YouTube. So uh, yeah, check this out too. Also, I'm streaming uh, on a weekly basis on Mondays, um, and um, occasionally I stream when I uh, when I'm not traveling. I stream on. Um, Hasura streams, uh, also on Twitch. I'll share uh, also a bunch of links. And um, yeah, if you, um, I have a bunch of uh, conferences in next month. So um, feel free to, if you see me at um, any of these conferences, AgentConf, NBC Photo, uh, React Amsterdam, if you see me at any of these uh, conferences, feel free to reach out and just to talk about anything. Yeah, I can and, actually uh, recommend it. I, I bumped into uh, Vladimir at the ReasonConf last year. Very friendly guy. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can say uh, can, can say the same about you. It was like really, really awesome to bump into you and uh, Reason uh, Malkov. And uh, yeah, your workshop was amazing. Actually, uh, I want to give it also as a pick. If you haven't seen uh, Sean's talks on YouTube, you definitely should check it out because. Uh, uh, he he's also like really really great speaker. No, oh, thank you. 
Oh, by the way, yeah. um, we actually, last Friday, a couple of days ago, we released a ReasonML GraphQL app uh, as open source that will allow you to do a collaborative spot, Spotify DJ. So it's all written in GraphQL and ReasonML, all serverless, um, static open source. So definitely go check that out. It's SpotDJ. So spotdj.onegraphapp.com. Cool. We'll definitely check it out. Uh, cool. So uh, to wrap up this episode, we talked about like bunch of things uh, here about Treason, GraphQL, Unikernels, and um, several as uh, lots of things. One graph. And um, thanks a lot for uh, um, Sean and for time I uh, joining us in this uh, episode. And um, see you at the actually hear you at <laughs> at next episodes. All right. Cheers. Thanks for joining. Bye. Thanks for having Cheers. me. Bye bye.